You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on May 5th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology History uh, Q&A. So let's see, we had a bunch of questions saved up here. Um, let's see, all right, let's take this one from Mikhail. Question was, why did we, as, a, as humanity, spend so much time not building technology when the Greeks had invented so many things before zero BC? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure I know all the answers, but let's talk a little bit about that. So first question is, what technology did exist in the ancient world and what drove further development of technology through time? I think it's important to understand that technology development tends to be driven by people's needs. And the, there was, uh, th there have been different kinds of drivers for needs. So for example, wars are often a big driver for technology needs. And in ancient times, people were inventing siege machines and so on. In more modern times, people were developing airplanes, inventing radar, developing nuclear weapons, all these kinds of things as something driven by uh, the needs of war. And um, that, that's, you know, it's one of the paradoxes of wars is that for all their bad features, they tend to have the, the, the good feature, usually it's a good feature of advancing the development of technology. People, people kind of, uh, uh, you know, do more and energize on those kinds of things in those types of situations. I think that um, uh, in the ancient world, as I say, quite a bit of technology was developed for, for things like siege machines and so on. You know, how do you, how do you throw something? You know, how do you make this giant um, catapult-like thing that throws something over the walls of a city? How do you um, uh, do things where... Um, uh, do, do, do things like that. Um, I think, you know, realistically, it's not a, not a, a great thing to, to talk about, but realistically, one of the reasons that, that certain kinds of technology were not as much developed, I think, in the ancient world is that there were humans, often slaves, who just would do a lot of stuff. And it's like, why make a machine when you can have a person do it? Now, of course, if we reflect that to modern times, you might ask in the development of technology, why aren't all the factories robotic? You know, can't we make robotic factories? And isn't that a better idea? Well, robots are hard to make. You know, there are problems like how do you even grasp an object? You know, if you're if you're even doing packing for, you know, shipping out a bunch of stuff to for, for a retail or something, how do you how do you pick up all these weird shaped objects and uh, put them in boxes to ship ship around to places? That turns out to be a really hard problem. And you know, in, with modern machine vision, machine learning, robot control, and so on, it, one's gradually getting closer to the problem. How do you pick up a weird shaped object and be able to put it in a box? But even that isn't easy. And a lot of what's done 
in robotic factories these days is still really quite primitive and really quite based on sort of very specific programming. Move this robot arm to this position, this number of millimeters ab above this thing, and do this. It's not at all, uh, you know, use the eyes of the robot uh, and figure out what to do. So, so you know, if the things that are coming in, I don't know, fruit picking or something, and and it's each each piece of fruit is a different shape. That's a challenging thing. It's when the thing is precise, you can build a system that will precisely robotically do this or that. But so, so the question of why aren't there more robotic production lines in the world? Uh, well, the answer is because they're expensive and it's very non-trivial to build them. And it's still in the world today for many kinds of things like you know assembling an iPhone or something, it's cheaper to use labor in some parts of the world than it is to uh, set up that whole robotic factory, have it all work, and um, have uh, and have things um, um, uh, be um, uh, you know have have um, uh, ha have everything be based on robots. I mean, for example, Tesla. Um, I know Elon Musk has lots of personal frustration about about the difficulty of actually debugging a robot factory. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, it's um, uh, I'm sure when Henry Ford was first uh, developing production lines, he too had to personally go and, and uh, debug aspects of the production line. But in any case, that, you know, it's one of the things that Tesla, for example, has done that's, um, uh, that's quite bold, is to try and make uh, much more robotic production lines than, than people have done before. But for many purposes, the drive, you might say, in modern times, why don't we have more robotic production lines? Well, the answer is because people are still cheaper as a way of, of making lots of things than the, uh, than the cost of production lines. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating a little bit as I'm saying this because, of course, it's a complicated thing because the people you have to pay incrementally, the robot production line, to some extent, you just make a big investment up front and then it just runs itself. Of course, it doesn't really run itself. It has to be maintained. It requires, you know, complex uh, uh, work by usually a smaller number of people, but but with uh, more complex skills um, to keep the production line running. But so, you know, if we look back to to ancient Greek times, people might have said, "Well, why are we going to make automation to do this or that thing? Why do we make, you know, why would we make an automated, um, uh, I don't know." Um, uh, a grape harvesting machine when we can just have humans pick the grapes. And, and I think that's part of the dynamic of, of why more technology didn't develop there. I think we see that in modern times with, uh, with interest in some parts of the world like Japan and in robotics for, for taking care of uh, uh, the, the older population and so on, because it's like you, you, there, there aren't even people to pay to do it. So, uh, you know, so you kind of are driven into, into some kind of automation. But I think, you know, automation happens only, often happens only when it needs to happen. I'll, I'll give you another example. In software engineering, one of the things that has been a long time objective of mine is to sort of automate as much as you can about the production of software and about uh, building computations. That's kind of one of the big stories of Wolfram Language is make things as automatic as possible. Now you might say, why isn't that something everybody wants to do in software engineering, make things as automatic as possible? 
Well, the answer is because particularly with the, with the sort of successes of the tech industry, um, it's often, it's perfectly easy just to pay humans to do it. It doesn't matter. You can pay humans to write individual lines of JavaScript code. Uh, why bother to automate it? You can just pay the humans to do it. So it's another case where the drive for automation is, is not as great as you might think it would be. I mean, in our own case, my own calculation is to have a company that's comparatively small and where we have automated as much as we can so that with a comparatively small number of people, we can achieve a lot. I'll give you another example of a, of a drive for automation and how that happens. As a company, uh, its uh, name is actually Emerald Cloud Lab. And uh, it started off as a, as a company that was, was doing uh, sort of drug development um, using trying to develop kind of algorithmic drugs with a very interesting kind of scientific direction um, that uh, uh, had some relations to, to a bunch of science that I've done about simple programs and so on, but was a very kind of a bold direction of building a new platform for drug development um, that was sort of making kind of algorithmic drugs. Well, it was a small company. And as, uh, as a result, it had sort of the, the, the difficulty of how are we going to run all these experiments? How are we going to set them all up? We don't have the money to pay all these people to do it. So what they did is they built an automated lab. And they took many years building this automated lab. And eventually, turns out that automated lab is a super valuable thing in its own right. And so actually, they split up a separate company. That's the Emerald Cloud Lab thing that is just dealing with this much higher level of automation in a biology and chemistry lab. And, and that's something that's actually rolling out in, in the next little while. Um, but that's something where, again, if you're a pharma company and you're doing all these experiments and things, it's like you might as well just pay the humans to, to put things in test tubes and do all those kinds of things because that's actually, that's not where you're spending most of your money. It's, um, uh, that's, a, that's a reasonable economic thing to do. But because these guys at Emerald uh, had this sort of economic constraint that they just couldn't pay for the, 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 all the humans necessary to do all these experiments. They had to automate it. And so that drove the creation of technology in that particular small example. So, so I think one of the things that sort of holds back the development of technology is you don't need to do it because you can just have humans do things rather than automate those things. Again, sometimes... Uh, for example, in, in, in cases of, I don't know, something like, uh, you know, war is one of the drivers, uh, sometimes perhaps medicine is another driver, uh, where you have a situation where, where um, uh, you just can't do something without having more technology, then you develop the technology. Now, of course, there are other, there are other funky cases, like in the financial area, there's all kinds of technology that, well, at least, uh, I don't know whether it's first developed there, but it certainly uh, has de development there, where, for example, you're saying, well, I want to get some advantage by knowing this data a little bit faster than these other guys. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I think it may be an apocryphal story, but um, that, uh, you know, Galileo first uh, licensed his telescope to the merchants of Venice so that they could run up that tower in the middle of Venice and look out at the horizon and see whose ships were coming in and whose weren't and go trade in the in the market um, based on that information faster than the other guys could. So that was sort of a, a telescope developed for, for the sake of a financial advantage. And, and sometimes, again, there are, these, there are these strange constraints that drive technology development. Another one 
that's a slightly funky story is about semiconductor development, the development of microprocessors and so on. Uh, one of the drivers for that was uh, uh, companies like Schlumberger, an oil instrumentation company that wanted to put these very sophisticated tools in oil wells and uh, uh, wanted to have them. And, and you'd end up with something which had all this discrete components, discrete electronic components, and the tool will be 200 feet long. And by the time you've got a 200 foot thing going down a big oil well, and maybe the, the oil well, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the drilling hole maybe got uh, for, for different reasons would turn. And then this 200 foot long thing would just break as you put it down this, uh, this oil well. So it's like, okay, then it's worth investing in semiconductors because they're going to reduce the size of uh, the micro the, of the of the computational elements that we have to put down these uh, these oil wells. Let's let's invest in semiconductors so we can minimize so we can sort of miniaturize this um, uh, this this device. And you know, again, there are there are there are all these different places where sort of technology development is driven by different kinds of things. You know, you have ships. They're going and trading over long distances and things like this. They might get lost. How can you prevent them getting lost? Well, you have to start developing navigation technology and, and things like this to, 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 to provide that. So I, I think an important piece of the story of technology is when is it needed? What's driving the development? And it's some necessity that's driving the development. And if there's another solution, people will often not make that invention. Um, they'll they'll find a way to just sort of patch around things rather than having to make the invention. So I think in, uh, uh, in the time, I mean, I suppose in the, in the period of time from, um, I would say that the, the Roman Empire was impressive for developing lots of engineering solutions, whether they're aqueducts or uh, other kinds of, um, um, uh, you know, I think they were particularly big on things like plumbing and roads and things like this. And, and then as society changed after the fall of the Roman Empire, it's not clear whether, uh, whether those things didn't get developed more just because the goals of society had changed somewhat or, or what. Um, and so I, I think, um, I mean, this question of, of sort of why does technology get developed at certain times and not others is, is partly driven by these, you know, what does society consider as important? I mean, today, uh, the... Um, uh, you know, I, I guess in this pandemic, for example, there's all sorts of technology that has been being driven to be developed, whether it's mRNA vaccines or whether it's uh, uh, various kinds of uh, tightening up of various kinds of um, uh, remote working technology and so on um, that's sort of driven by that necessity. Now, another question is when you're building sort of technology as a certain stack of capabilities that you need to reach a certain level of technology. Like, let's say you're trying to build microprocessors. What do you need to build a microprocessor? You need a whole huge tower of technology to build microprocessors, which is why when people say, let's set up a microprocessor factory in country X, well, it might not be so easy because you know, you'll need um, uh, all kinds of services there to support that microprocessor factory, even given that you know how to build the microprocessor factory and getting to the point where you have, you know, you can make something that's perfectly clean. You can deal with having this sort of very microscopic control of things. You can uh, understand enough about the physics of semiconductors. You know, all these different kinds of things that you need to sort of have this tower of to be able to create uh, uh, that particular technology. 
So I think, uh, you know, when, when you look at kind of the, um, uh, the history of different kinds of technology, um, there's this effect of you have to have a stack of things in order to get to a certain point. Uh, you have to have uh, a necessity to do things. I mean, like, for example, another, another good example of lack of necessity is uh, a lot of deep space probe technology and so on and space exploration technology. It's like there was a big push for reasons of national pride and other kinds of things in the 1960s to do, uh, you know, space exploration and so on. And uh, that necessity decayed after that time. And then not a lot's been done until quite recently in, in those areas. And, uh, you know, that's something where, where, again, it's like if it wasn't needed, it didn't get done, so to speak. If there wasn't a push to get it done, it wasn't going to get done. Um, I think sometimes people, there are things that, like, this is a really good idea, but people don't see its significance at a certain time. Um, what's a good example of that? Well, here's an example. A, a lot of, uh, and so, sometimes it, it's a complicated mess of how technology develops. I mean, okay, so sometimes there's an idea for a piece of technology, but it just doesn't work well enough to be used for some new purpose. Like a good example is eyeglasses. They were developed, um, oh, I don't know when, but they, uh, they, they long predated the telescope. And for example, people like Kepler didn't have telescopes, but I think he did actually wear glasses at some point. And how could that work? And why would he not have used that to make a telescope? Well, the answer is because I think, because the lenses weren't really quite good enough to, to they were good enough to, to help in, in doing, uh, you know, uh, close-up work and reading things and so on if you if you have presbyopia or whatever but um, they weren't good enough to um, uh, to make something sort of where you have multiple lenses together making something like a telescope so that was a case where sort of to get to the point where you could make a telescope you had to uh, sort of you have to have, have developed lenses to be really really uh, sort of high quality enough to make a telescope another good example drones uh, you know, why weren't uh, multi-rotor uh, sort of vertical takeoff airplane-like things developed a long time ago? Well, there were sort of things a bit like that, but the control systems technology wasn't good enough. There weren't microprocessors. The uh, the battery technology wasn't good enough. You had to have, you know, and you, you'd have to use an internal combustion engine and things back in the day. Um, and uh, you might have to have a person trying to pull all these controls, and that wasn't easy to do. So it was one of these things where, yes, in principle, it was doable. And there are funky movies of people, you know, having quadrotor type devices um, from back in the certainly 1950s, I would say, maybe even earlier than that. Um, but it didn't, things didn't quite work well enough. And then suddenly about, uh, what was it, a little less than 10 years ago now, sort of all the technology pieces came together and it became practical to do that. So, so that's another kind of thing is when do things get good enough that you can actually do this or that thing? I mean, I remember uh, flat screen televisions. You know, I had seen a flat screen television back in the mid 1980s, but um, uh, they weren't sort of the, the, it wasn't possible to get production yields that were good enough to put them out as consumer products until uh, well into the uh, 1990s, even maybe early 2000s. So, uh, there, are, there are these kinds of other dynamics of, of what limits the, the speed of, of, um, uh, of, of technology adoption. I was trying to think of an example of a, of a case where 
people really had the idea of something, but nobody cared, so to speak. It was a, it was a device that just didn't have, um, uh, didn't have a use case um, until something changed in society that caused it to, to need to be used. Um, and uh, not thinking of a great example of that, but I, but I think there are, are examples of that. Well, anyway, long, long answer to a question about um, um, uh, um, about sort of what, what has driven or, or held back the development of technology and, and why aren't we, uh, why were there long periods of time when not a lot of technology was being developed? And, and I think part of the answer is, is because people just didn't have enough need for it and there wasn't enough of a push to, to make those things happen. I mean, it's very funny. If you look at the history of technology, these, there are these sort of bursts of activity in areas, like in, in England in a certain period in, in what the, the uh, well, there was, a, there was a good run in England of technology development um, from uh, what the 16, 1700s, 1800s was a really good run of technology development there. Uh, you know, why did it happen there and not in other places? Um, why, uh, I think these are, these sort of complicated issues. It's it's part of the partly related to these stories about you know why do so many movies get made in Hollywood and not in somewhere else? Why do so many uh, technology companies accumulate in Silicon Valley? Um, you know there tend to be these these situations that happen where there is a sort of culture of doing things in a particular place, and there's a lot of infrastructure available in that place to do those things, and so a lot gets done there. And it's the same in both space and time. There's, you know, people get used to the idea that, oh, you can make inventions and you can get patents and that really works, or you can make inventions and uh, and people will think you're, you know, you're cool type thing, and that really works in a certain society at a certain time. And so then more and more of that happens in that place at that time. And uh, in other places, it's it's often hard to get started and and just doesn't happen. So you know they're, they're, those are sort of accidents of history, but they're they're in a sense they are they things. And, and when you look back at them, you can say, oh well, this happened because there were these investors who started investing in these kinds of things, and there were this and there were that. But quite often there would have been a bunch of other places where those things could have happened. They just didn't happen, and the kind of self fulfilling. Uh, uh, mechanism didn't get started, so to speak. The positive feedback loop didn't get started in, in that place at that time. And uh, uh, it's always an interesting question, how you can start those things. Um, and uh, what, you know, if you're interested in developing some particular country or region or whatever, um, how do you get those kinds of things started to, to make uh, technology development happen there? Um, anyway, okay, let's see. Uh, all sorts of things here. Um, uh, there's a question here. Do I think the most important technical advances are due to individuals or groups? You know, any serious technology development is going to end up needing a group of people. But the leadership of that effort will typically be one person. It's, and the style of leadership will determine whether it's like that person is the main person doing this, or whether the, the style of leadership will be more like uh, behind the scenes, so to speak, where it just looks like the team is doing it. But I think it's fair to say that, that um, uh, any, any technical project will 
needs leadership. It, it doesn't just sort of naturally happen. At least it doesn't naturally happen well. Um, I think that, um, uh, but the leadership may be a little bit behind the scenes, so it's less visible to uh, to the public or to the history books, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's, um, uh, and when it comes to sort of how large a team does it take to really do some serious piece of technology development, you know, often there are many layers to that. There's kind of the, the core idea making, and then there's the actual implementation and deployment, and maybe there's the actual, uh, you know, running the electric cables all around the world type thing, which is a, uh, uh, which requires a lot more people, but it's not at the point where there have to be sort of the core ideas. There may be specific ideas to, you know, how do we run this electrical cable through this particular thing? Those are engineering problems that have to be solved, but, and, and that might require lots of, uh, lots of quite talented people to be able to solve those problems. But it's a little different than the original core, more basic problem of, you know, how do we make an electric generator or something like this? Um, and I think the, uh, uh, the, the world of kind of the, the lone inventor that's a pretty rare case and, and pretty specific to situations in which, uh, for one reason or another, the cost of, of taking the next step is, is, is lower. I mean, in software, for example, that, that does happen, that there can be sort of the lone inventor who writes a big chunk of software that turns out to be useful. Um, and because, in a sense, there are places where sort of the, the cost of development, the cost of producing a... Uh, of uh, a thing that could actually be deployed in the real world has become low enough that it's possible for an individual person to do it. But I think that's a pretty rare case. Let's see. Uh, question here. Okay, there was a question here from Kotoff about what are the greatest true things that Stephen Hawking discovered? Um, well, I think, uh, excuse me. I think uh, I, I, I knew Stephen Hawking, though not particularly well. Um, I would say that the, the most important discovery was this phenomenon called Hawking radiation. Um, and that was uh, discovered in what, 1973, maybe. There had been, um, a bunch of kind of related work done, but the key question was, when you have, a, a okay, black holes, this phenomenon that was sort of an inevitable consequence of Einstein's general theory of relativity from 1915, but their significance really wasn't understood until kind of the 1960s or so. It was very confusing whether they were just sort of mathematical artifacts, whether they were real things that could happen from collapsing stars, those kinds of things. That sort of kind of clarified by about the 1960s. And so then one of the questions was, okay, so you have this black hole, it's this gravitational phenomenon where you have this event horizon where things can go into the event horizon, but nothing can come out of the event horizon. Sort of the, the, uh, the escape velocity is, is of the black hole is, is more than the speed of light, nothing can escape, so to speak. That, that story became reasonably clear by the, by the 1960s. And um, then the question was, well, another thing that was sort of in the air was quantum field theory. Quantum field theory had been developed originally in uh, the 
well, it was originally started a bit about in the 1920s, right around the time when, when ordinary quantum mechanics and things like Schrodinger's equation and Dirac's equation and so on were developed. People wondered, we've got this quantum theory for, uh, for things like an electron, a single electron, but what about a field, like an electromagnetic field? And what about an electron that can emit photons? What about something where you have a system where the number of particles doesn't remain fixed. You're not just talking about a single electron that's moving around and asking what's the chance to find it in different places in a box or something like this, or different places in a hydrogen atom or something, but you're asking the question, if the number of particles can change, if the, if the electron can emit photons, for example, how does that work at the level of quantum mechanics? And for that, this idea of quantum field theory was invented. And by the, by the late 1920s, the basic uh, notions of quantum field theory had been laid down. The basic idea that what you would think about was it, a quantum field would be something where it could have an arbitrary number of particles. There would be sort of a component of a quantum field that was the one particle component, then the two particle component, three particle component, and so on. These are things called Fox spaces, uh, where the um, uh, where it's kind of a notion of you have all these different numbers of particles, and they they all sort of are together representing this quantum field. So early on, it was pretty hard to compute much with quantum field theory. It was very mathematically complicated. By the 1940s, quantum electrodynamics, the quantum field theory of electrons and photons was decently well developed. And people started being able to do real computations. The big sort of breakthrough there was the idea of renormalization, um, which was a way of getting rid of uh, sort of infinities that would naturally crop up in the computations done in that theory. But by the, by the 1950s or so, uh, quantum electrodynamics was kind of a, a machine for computing things to do with electrons and photons and, and lots of interesting calculations were done and people were like, wow, this is really cool. It agrees very perfectly with experiment. Things are really working. There was then an attempt to extend quantum field theory from the theory of electrons and photons to theories of other kinds of particles like atomic nuclei and the things that hold atomic nuclei together and so on, that wasn't very successful. And through the 1960s, basically, there was a, well, quantum field theory is kind of not, uh, it works for quantum electrodynamics, but it's not really going to be extendable. And uh, really, we have to have other theories, like the things, the precursors of string theory and so on, um, other theories to explain other kinds of particle phenomena. So, but... Still, quantum field theory was, was out and about, and you know, quantum electrodynamics worked well, and there was sort of increasing belief that maybe nuclear beta decay might be described by something that corresponds to a quantum field theory and similarly other kinds of particle things. But so there was sort of a, 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 an almost mathematical question of if we now combine this idea of quantum field theory with the idea of general relativity and black holes, what will happen? And, and sort of the most significant thing that Stephen Hawking did was to try and do a first step in that, in, that, uh, in that combination. And he worked out this idea of Hawking radiation. And I have to say that I, for example, was, was for a long time very unconvinced that this would actually be a real thing because what it required doing was taking the mathematical apparatus of quantum field theory and grafting it onto the mathematical apparatus of general relativity. And it wasn't clear that you could put those two things together. It wasn't clear that the approximations being made on the two sides were compatible with each other. But so that was so what Hawking 
did was to say, yes, you can put the mathematics together in this way, and you have a physical prediction that black holes should produce radiation. And, and for a while, it was thought that one might observe these exploding black holes, because as the black hole emits radiation, the smaller the black hole gets, the more intensely it emits radiation. And so when the black hole gets very, very small, it's sort of a runaway process, and there's this kind of burst as the black hole explodes. Well, we've never actually observed directly Hawking radiation in a black hole. Um, it's it's uh, too, too small to observe um, in typical black holes. If there happen to be black holes about the mass of Mount Everest that were created in the early universe, then we might see them kind of popping off and exploding right around now, but that doesn't seem to be happening. There are sort of analogs of black holes in other kinds of situations where the mathematics is more or less the same, but one's not dealing with gravity, one's dealing with uh, things in, in condensed matter systems and so on, where sort of black hole hooking radiation-like phenomena have been observed. But at this point, the mathematical structure, the approximations that Stephen Hawking made and so on to get Hawking radiation, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty validated because there's just this huge structure that now exists around um, kind of the, the merger of, of quantum field theory and general relativity that makes it seem like everything now sort of, uh, that there's, there's enough consistency in what's going on that it kind of probably pretty much works the way that Stephen Hawking said it would work. I have to say that in our uh, theory of physics, we can start seeing this stuff much more explicitly. We've, we've almost got to the point of being able to simulate uh, the event horizon of a black hole and see Hawking radiation, but we're not quite there yet. There's actually another bizarre phenomenon that I'm calling black hole wind, which is essentially a it's a it's a different version of something like Hawking radiation that uh, relates to gravitational radiation from black holes or what might look like gravitational radiation from black holes that I sort of started investigating last year, but um, but that's that's getting us off off topic here. Um, I think that 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 the the, um, so that's, uh, as I see it, that's the sort of the, the core thing. And the thing that's non-trivial is you take these two different theories, you put them together, you make a prediction. It's just not clear that that's going to possibly work. And so that's the, that's kind of the, 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 the kudos really goes to, um, to Stephen Hawking for having sort of had the, the boldness to say this really is going to fit together this way. And that's how it's going to work physically and not just, oh, here's one mathematical approximation. Here's another one. I don't really know what's going to happen when you put those two things together. Well, let's see. Um, let's see. There's a question here about um, how is research changing in universities? Is it safe to assume that most research and innovation will come from private industry? Oh, this is an interesting question. You know, one question is, what is the role? What, what are universities supposed to be for? And, you know, when they were founded in the 1200s, the, the primary mission, I think, was education and was taking knowledge that had existed and passing it down to successive generations. And that's a, that's a pretty good mission. But at some point, that mission got combined with the mission of create new knowledge. It's not clear that those missions have to be part of the same thing. I mean, we don't expect your typical K through 12 teacher to be creating new knowledge. We expect that they'll be passing knowledge to successive generations. Um, but we expect that at least some professors at some universities are creating new knowledge as part of sort of the professoring business, so to speak. That merger of sort of research with education, 
is a is a uh, it's well it's 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 happened to some extent for quite a while, but in some ways it's a it's a new phenomenon, and, and it doesn't happen the same way in all countries. I mean, in some countries, the industrial research labs or the government labs are the primary places where research is expected to be done. Universities are much more the place where education is expected to be done. And um, so, you know, there's a question then of when one is seeing innovation happen, how does it, where should it happen? You know, one of the challenges with innovation, it's a sort of bizarre self-defeating phenomenon is when you might say, you know, there's some field, the bigger the field is, the more innovation is gonna happen. Well, it often doesn't work that way because the greatest innovation, the sort of highest rate of change tends to be in these places that are kind of at the boundaries, at the margins. For example, at the margins between two different fields or in some place where some new field is being created. And those places sort of by definition aren't the places where things are big yet. By the time things are big, it's often a sign that the most fertile period of innovation is over for that particular field. And when things get big, it often becomes more difficult to have additional innovation because people are saying, there's this whole institutional structure. You know, you've got to fit in in this way and this way and this way. If you're doing something new and different, hey, that doesn't fit into the institutional structure. We can't get that funded. You can't have a job doing that in, in this department and so on. And so the bigness actually slows things down in many cases. So that's that's been one of the, one of the issues, and I think sometimes in the past, maybe uh, I don't know, in universities, um, maybe what was it now? By by the now by now, seventy years ago, eighty years ago, more than that, a hundred years ago, even there was a lot of uh, sort of a professor as an island, so to speak, and just you know there was a professor, and they were just doing what they did, and they would give lectures and hopefully the students would come to those lectures. In some countries, there was a direct feedback loop to people getting paid based on students coming to their lectures. In other places, that wasn't really how it worked, but it was kind of like individual professor types and they often weren't called professors. Some countries, the more Germanic countries, they were, tended to be called professors. In, in England, for example, the, the title professor really meant the head of a department who was administratively running things rather than the person who was necessarily doing the fanciest work, so to speak. Um, the, uh, but in any case, in, in many cases, you know, if you look back at the time of, I don't know, uh, Alan Turing or at the time of um, uh, even Isaac Newton, you know, much, much earlier or many of these kinds of people, these were sort of individual people just who were, who were paid for in many cases by universities, but were just doing their own thing, so to speak, as opposed to people embedded within large systems where there's some whole flow of funding and there's some whole department that's doing this or that thing and, and so on. I mean, there was a, there was a, 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 you know, from a personal point of view, one of the things that was common, I, I don't know about all countries, but in, in England, it was a pretty common thing that people would get, you know, college fellowships at a young age and then fundamentally, they were set for life to just go do, figure stuff out and do what they wanted to do. There are other countries, like I think France has a system with CNRS, uh, which sort of, uh, appoints people comparatively early in life to some sort of lifelong system of, of being funded to do research. Um, and I think that from a, from a societal point of view, that those systems can be pretty good because 
you're saying to people, okay, you can do whatever you want, which means you can do innovative things. You don't have to necessarily toe this line or that line because you're kind of set. From an individual point of view, it's, it's not necessarily such a good deal because you set somebody up at a young age and you say, okay, you're just set to go thinking for the rest of your life. That can be a very difficult uh, kind of situation to be in. Sounds good at the beginning, but it's like, okay, you know, what do you really have to do? Well, I don't really have to do anything. Well, you know, 10 years later, it's like, well, I don't really feel like doing anything. I'm not going to do anything for the next 10 years. And, and pretty soon things sort of spiral down and, and not much happens. But so for society, it might actually be a good bet because let's say one in three of those people does something really innovative. Two out of three might not have particularly good outcomes. Um, and that's bad for those individual people. But from society's point of view, having that one out of three that really does something spectacular can be a big win. Now, you know, in other countries and other times, it's like, well, it's not fair to pick this person because they seem promising and give them this fantastic deal. Sort of things should be made more equal and fair. Well, if you do that and you say, well, everybody's got to go through this whole process of, you know, this 10-year, 15-year process of, of towing the line so they get tenure at their university or whatever, by the time you've done that, people are, you know, uh, uh, you know they've been doing that so many years that they've probably lost whatever energy they had at the beginning to go off and do innovative things. They'll just say, you know what, I'm just going to keep towing this line. I'm not going to do anything terribly innovative. So there are there are sort of that's a dynamic that tends to happen. Now, the question is, where and when do people really get to do new and different things? And it's complicated because you need a certain amount of freedom to do new and innovative things, but also there tends to be a certain driver of necessity that helps in doing new and innovative things. I'm not sure it's, it's when it comes to basic research, I'm not sure that that's always quite as necessary as it is in technology, but it's still, if somebody just says, okay, you're thinking for the next 25 years, um, it's like, okay, what am I supposed to think about? But if somebody, uh, if you're for whatever reason, you're like, I've got to solve the problem of some uh, sort of big problem in mathematics or something. It's like, that's a driver that gives you a direction. And then if you have the freedom to actually be able to think about it for 10 years or something, then that can be a big win. But I think it's, it's, if you look at the different entities where it's possible for innovation to occur, they're different kinds of places. I mean, they're universities that have a very definite rhythm at this point. They have bundled together uh, their educational mission, in many cases with a research mission, often with funding from governments and things like that, uh, where there's very definite programs that are trying to achieve this or that thing um, that, um, uh, that, that go in definite directions and which limit the, the amount of innovation that can happen because it's like, well, you can innovate as much as you want so long as it applies to this very specific thing. And that doesn't really get you kind of free, unfettered innovation, so to speak. So, you know, that's what tended to happen at the universities. And it's a very rare case where somebody says, I'm just a professor. I've got tenure. I can do whatever I want. I'm just going to do this weird stuff. You know, I, a, a friend of mine, this is now... When was it? This was in the even in the uh, 1970s at um, Distinguished University, which I won't name. The um, this person was a physicist, and he decided he was really interested in biology. 
And so it had tenure and was a fine, you know, successful tenured physics professor. He said, well, actually, I want to go work on biology. And the university said, well, then your tenure doesn't apply anymore. You know, if you go and set up a lab in the biology department, you start working on biology, well, then, you know, tenure doesn't count anymore. You can't go do that. Now, later on, people started saying, we want to do interdisciplinary research. We want to have these connections between this and that. You know, often the reason why that's ending up being said is because people know that the, the rapid rates of innovation come in these margins between different fields. And, and so interdisciplinary sounds good, but you don't need interdisciplinary unless you have disciplinary, so to speak, unless you have, you know, these big structures of these, you know, big departments that just do this specific thing. And I think that, um, uh, so, you know, the, the, uh, it's a rare case where you have sort of the, the individual loose professor at a university who's just working on whatever, whatever uh, sort of funky thing they want to work on and potentially doing something very new and different. The vast majority of the situations are, are ones where there's a definite flow constrained by departments and funding and this and that and the other. And even the communities in which people find themselves. And like, you know, you can't work on this if you're in the such and such uh, physics community. You know, you'll be, if you suddenly start working on, I don't know what, um, you know, that, that'll be too shocking and uh, you'll be sort of ostracized from that community. So I think there's, there's sort of that dynamic operating in universities. When it comes to uh, things like, well, in different countries, there are different setups, but government labs, industrial labs, and so on, there are existing sort of setup labs, which can sometimes be quite well managed and sometimes can, can induce innovation in particularly in certain general directions for which there is a way to sort of take that innovation and do something with it. And then there's another case, which is startup companies and entrepreneurial kinds of kinds of things. I mean, the an important feature of startup companies is they usually fail. And that fact right there is interesting and is a good thing for innovation in a sense, because it's telling you that if, if there wasn't a lot of failure, it will be telling you there weren't a lot of risks. And there wasn't a lot of, let's just try doing this. It might not work. So insofar as there's sort of an ecosystem for startups that can fail, that's probably a good thing. But of course, like everything, the more startups there are, the more being an entrepreneur becomes a thing people do, the more institutionalized it gets, and the more constrained the system gets. So for example, you might say, well, let's, you know, we've got this great idea about how to make a fusion reactor or something. Let's just go get venture capital for that and make a startup company. Well, might, might be a lot harder than you think because venture capital, you might say, they're just going to take all these risks. No, they're not. You know, they have upstream investors who put money into this venture fund to take certain very specific kinds of risks. And in a sense, it is, you know, a complicated dance to de-risk the, the process of, of giving out venture capital by saying, we're going to do it in this particular way, where we understand roughly what the rhythm of that kind of company is going to be. We understand this or that thing. I mean, I know I get asked quite a bit um, by friends of mine who are in venture capital and so on, when there's mostly when there's a, a kind of a really new, different innovation type thing, they just say to startup companies, eh, no, thank you. We don't invest in that. We invest in specific kinds of software and this, that, and the other. But, but sometimes I'll get asked by friends of mine about sort of these wilder invention kinds of things. You know, 
is this something that could possibly work? And uh, most of the time, even, even when I say, yeah, I think it could possibly work, it'll be like, yeah, we, we're not gonna invest in this. It's too far away from our sort of core investment ideas. So I think, you know, innovation is, it's, it's tough to have, uh, almost it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of self-defeating thing. If you say, let's make a system for causing innovation to happen, that's almost self-defeating because by the time it gets big, it's going to have certain constraints and it's not going to, not going to allow innovation to occur. I mean, I know, for example, I, maybe I've told this, this story in these, this venue before, but, but um, a, a good example of sort of the, the systematization of innovation uh, in the Soviet Union, for example, there was an attempt to systematize innovation. And it was a thing, what was it called? T-R-I-Z, I think. Uh, probably stands for something in Russian. It was a, a system for innovating that basically said, you know, you do things like you take patents from one area that you can see in Western patents or something, you take ones from another area, and then you have this sort of way of, of, of combining these two areas and finding something in the middle that will be an innovation. Sort of an interesting idea, but in a sense, it, it feels very self-defeating to say we're gonna make a system for innovation. Because in a sense, anytime you have a system, you're kind of constraining things and you're not allowing this kind of free innovation uh, possibility. So, uh, you know, in terms of the future, you know, where will there be innovation? You know, I think it, it, it depends with respect to university versus companies. It's a complicated dance and my guess is it will, it will flit around to different places. I think at universities, one of the questions is, what is the mechanism for creating a new direction at a university? And it's really hard. And, and you know, a lot of what we see is uh, things where, you know, the departments were created when funding started coming in after World War II, and they've kind of been the same departments ever since. That's a pretty common thing. There were particular areas that got created, like molecular biology was one area that just sort of sprung up and departments were created. There were other areas like linguistics was an area where departments were created that didn't work out so well. Most of those have been closed. There were, there were um, uh, another kind of areas, computer science, where there weren't departments. And even in the 1980s, there were still many major universities didn't have computer science departments. Then those things were created. I think they're a little bit of a mess in terms of what their mission is at this point. You know, is it sort of a trade school to teach people programming? Is it a theoretical place where people study sort of theory of computation? Is it a place where people study specific applications like machine learning and so on? Is it a place where people try and build sort of academic versions of, of systems that might be relevant in the real world? Those are, those are all slightly different, subtly different missions that sometimes get bundled together and sometimes people get very confused about what the mission really is. Um, and uh, uh, and whether, uh, you know, it, and, and whether you can do, I mean, there's, uh, you know, to what extent can you do sort of leading edge computer science-y type stuff in universities? Well, you can do some. Um, you can also do that kind of thing in companies pretty well. And there's places where you really just can't get that done in a university because it requires too much kind of legwork of too much actual sort of uh, real work of software engineering that, you know, a, 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 a rotating door of students doing it is just not going to do it. You have to have systematic professional people doing it, um, or you're just not going to be able to build a workable system. Um, 
but uh, so di di different dynamics for different um, different kinds of things. And you know, there are other places where universities can be involved, but ultimately it's too big and too expensive um, to to be something that's going to happen just at a university. Let's see. Well, I think we're we're getting slightly short on time here, but let me um, look at a few more of these. Um, let's see, there's a question from David Brown about, do I know various people at Renaissance Technologies? The answer to that is yes. Um, oh boy, there's a question from DL. Do you think computer science is an actual science? I mean, theory of computation seems like a science to me. Um, but there's a lot that seems like it's engineering. Yeah, you know, is it a science? What does it mean to be a science? I think to be a science, there's an operational definition would be, there's a core set of principles that aren't just, that, that are things that can be studied abstractly rather than just being used in practice. I mean, I just made that definition up, so I'm not sure it's the most perfect definition, but let's take that as a working definition and explore computer science in that, um, in that context. I mean, it's, it's often said in a kind of waggy type way that anything that has the word science in its name isn't really a science, you know, economic science or, or well, life science. I don't know, that's pretty, pretty sciencey. Um, but uh, in any case, with computer science, the question is, what are the core ideas? And are there a core set of abstract ideas or is it all engineering details? Truth is, there's a lot of engineering details and a lot of what ends up getting taught in computer science is engineering details. A lot of computer science courses are basically engineering details. One question is, to what extent are you teaching sort of eternal truths of computing? And to what extent are you teaching things which work this way because that's the way this particular programming language was designed at this particular time and so on. I think the what's happened in computer science is, okay, so, so back when computer science was young, there was theory of computation, you know, Turing machines, finite automata, uh, compilers, things like this. And that's what people used to teach in computer science departments. And maybe the computer science departments were plugged into electrical engineering departments and they taught things about actual computer systems and so on there as well. But um, uh, that, was, that was kind of the, the, the thing through the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, uh, into the 1980s. And I remember that when we were first hiring people at our company in the, in the late 1980s, we really didn't hire many people who came from computer science departments because they didn't really know things that were really relevant to us. They knew stuff about theory of computation. It wasn't very applicable. It was kind of, I thought it was very interesting stuff. I worked on that stuff myself, but it wasn't something that we, as a company that was basically making kind of sophisticated, but ultimately software tools really needed. And then there came this moment when computer science departments, well, and a lot of the actual programming stuff have been taught in things like business schools and, uh, you know, um, MIS systems, uh, uh, what were they called? Um, IS, information systems and so on, which wasn't computer science. 
It was these other departments of universities that were much closely, more closely aligned with areas like accounting, business, and so on. Um, they would teach programming there, um, and they would teach sort of business programming and so on there. Um, and then there came this moment, I, I suppose in the 1990s, when there was sort of a big demand for programmers, programmers, everybody need, needed programmers, and people going to colleges were saying, and I think I'm gonna get a great job if I study computing or computer science. And what was the, what was the department gonna be called at a university? Well, it ended up being called computer science, even though a lot of what was being taught was basically how to program and, um, and, and not really things that were very theoretical or abstract. Now, I think, you know, if you ask, is there theoretical abstract stuff in, I think there are, there are three areas. So there's computational X, there's the underlying theory of computational things, and there's the practice of programming. And those are three different things. You know, I think that one of the things that is very notable is the great paradigm of the 21st century is the computational paradigm, thinking about things in computational terms, thinking about every possible field in computational terms from you know archeology span to zoology, whatever, in computational terms. How do you think about those animal migrations in computational terms? How do you think about that uh, archeological site in computational terms? Well, how is, quotes computer science as taught in computer science departments relevant to those things. Most of it isn't terribly, you know, writing, knowing how to write some, uh, uh, I don't know, some innards of some database or knowing how to uh, set up some user interface or something, it's just not terribly relevant. What's relevant in those places is sort of the conceptual uh, foundations of computation and how they can be applied to those fields. And, and indeed, I've spent a large chunk of my life building our sort of computational language to get people to the point where they can apply computational ideas across a lot of fields without being down in the trenches of computer science as it is often sort of uh, uh, pervade in, in sort of uh, in terms of programming. So, so one thing is kind of the ideas of computation. How do you think about things in computational terms? How do you, how do you conceptualize things computationally? How do you take computational notions and apply them to different kinds of fields? That's sort of bucket number one. Not well handled in most universities at this point. Uh, another bucket is purely learn to be a programmer. It's kind of like learn to write English. You know, it's a, it's a skill. You know, it happens with English, uh, you know, we have a good deal if we're English speakers better than, let's say, Chinese or something, where you have to go much further in schooling to get to the point where you can write it fluently. Um, but in any case, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a skill, writing English, Chinese, whatever. And, um, uh, and writing programs, low-level programs, a bit like that. Um, and people, one of the things that gets very confusing is there's a point in schooling where you're not just learning to write. You end up just using writing to write about lots of different kinds of things. And I know even in the scribal schools in ancient Babylon, where they were sort of the sort of first place where they were teaching people to write, they would spend a few years teaching people to write, and then they would break it into these sort of five or six different areas where, and then there are different things you can write about. You know, you can do accounting, you can do this, you can do that, and so on. So it's like, writing X, just like we need 
computational X right now. And there's a bit of a confusion in computer science that maybe, you know, what do you do? So you learn a certain amount of programming and then what do you program about? And in computer science departments, there are these sort of funny things that have been grafted on like machine learning, cryptography, robotics, some of these kinds of areas, which have been sort of plugged in as things you can program about. Um, now, those actually are very poor fits because something like machine learning or robotics for that matter, these require quite a bit of mathematics and calculus and things like that. And people had even taken calculus out of the typical computer science curriculum before machine learning came along because it didn't seem relevant to learning to program. And it's kind of a sign it's a, it's a different type of thing. So, and then, then there's the third area, which is what, what, are the, what is the abstract theory of computational things? And, and there's a certain amount that's been done in computation theory and in things like the development of computational complexity theory and so on. I would argue that a lot of kinds of things I've been very interested in of exploring the computational universe of simple programs and my whole new kind of science direction, I think that really is the pure end of computation. And I think that what got done in the sort of development from Turing machines and so on that segued into the more engineering side of computation, let's use a Turing machine for this particular thing rather than let's study Turing machines for their own sake. There's still a pure computation area of let's study Turing machines for their own sake. And what's happened, for example, in mathematics is there's a big structure of pure mathematics that is quite independent of the applications of mathematics to particular fields. In computation, that's been less clear. I mean, part of it is theory of computation, but that's been been pulled in very specific directions to do with computational complexity theory, development of, of specific practical algorithms and so on, not what is computation abstractly and studying computation for its own sake. So I, I think that um, the, um, the, the, these, the this big area of sort of study the computational universe for its own sake and understand principles about how it works, that's a huge and, and still rather open area um, that has been only a corner of it has been sort of explored with existing computation theory. Now, I, I realize that in defining these sort of three directions for computer science, two of them are deeply connected to things that I personally spend a lot of time on. Um, I mean, the, the, this whole computational X, how do, you, how do you inject kind of computational thinking into everything and how do you provide the tools to do that? That's the thing that the whole Wolfram language story is about this whole area of sort of how do you think about computation at an abstract theoretical level, that's the whole kind of new kind of science um, and study the computational universe area. The, the practical programming area, which I view as being much more of a trade school activity, which doesn't make it not useful, it just makes it different and not really a, a sort of intellectual science type thing. It's more a do a trade and actually build stuff that, uh, that people need built and so on. And, you know, I think that uh, you're asking, is computer science really a science? I think there are the, the, the most core area of pure computation is, is absolutely uh, a science. It is not a well-developed science. It's a science I've tried uh, to, to put some considerable effort into defining and so on. Um, but it's still, you know, we're still in the early years of that science. In terms of the sort of computational X, in a sense, that's not computer science. I don't even conceivably computer science. That's the application of computation to all these different areas, just like the application of mathematics in all sorts of things, whether it's physics or economics or, or chemistry or whatever else, 
you don't usually talk about those as mathematics, not even applied mathematics. They're just mathematics as a method, methodology um, for, uh, uh, for doing some other kind of field. So I tend to think of that as, as, as the story of computer science. And it's, it's a very confusing thing for universities right now because lots of students come in and say, we want to study computer science. You know, sometimes it's 70% of the incoming students are saying, we want to study computer science. What do they actually want to study? They know computation is an important paradigm. They are trying to do computational X ultimately for some X. They may or may not yet know what the X is, but they're probably not going to be in the trenches programmers. And in fact, one of the things that is a, is a definite trend is in the trenches programming, you know, we're trying to automate that away. You know, back when I started using computers, you know, you programmed in them in assembly language and people, even when I was building our first sort of high level symbolic system back in 1979, people were saying, well, of course, to do real computing, you use assembly language. Well, nobody says that anymore. Um, the uh, very, almost nobody says that anymore. It's, you know, one's dealing with things that are a much more humanized level and the, the low level programming languages have, have, have are still not at that humanized level. And, and the whole idea of our sort of computational language and, and Wolfram language and so on is to make a bridge to the sort of uh, human level of, of thinking about computation um, and bridge that to what the computers are actually doing. And so I, I think that's been um, uh, a, um, uh, so, you know, that, that's, a, that's a somewhat different kind of thing that isn't, there's, there's a lot to understand about sort of the computational method. And uh, I'm hoping I'll have a chance to write more about these kinds of things, because I think there's, there's really a big story of teaching people the computational method, which is not the same as teaching computer science. And the computational method, there is some basic science to do around it, although it mostly ends up in this sort of pure computation area. And again, very separate from the sort of trade school aspect of, of just write code. Let's see, we should probably wrap up um, in just a moment here. Uh, there's a question from Aaron here. Um, well, let me not take that this time. It's a question about, uh, we, we made in, in um, I think it was like 2011, we made this big poster that's really nice. You can, you can find a web version of it and you can even, I think, still get the physical poster. It's a history of um, the uh, development of systematic data and computable knowledge. It's kind of how did the world become systematic in terms of data? How did one go from just saying, uh, you know, this uh, defining units of, of measure for weights and things like this, defining, uh, you know, how, how many hours are there in a day? How do you label chemicals? How do you do all these kinds of things systematically? Um, and uh, we kind of collected this sort of long history of how that developed. It's pretty interesting. I think the, the two winners of sort of most systematic data collected in, in, in history were probably the Babylonians and the US government. Um, they're, they're the two biggest collectors of data. And, and you can kind of see the rise and fall of empires um, as, um, uh, as you look at uh, sort of the, the history of systematic data, because, you know, it was, it was uh, the, the, the great, you know, empires or the, or the top countries or whatever it is, tend to be the ones that were defining the standards that were in a particular period in history that were ending up getting used. But the question is, what, what new things 
um, are there that uh, we can add to that? And, and we have, actually, I think there's going to be a revised version of it at some point where we have a, a number of additions that, um, um, uh, that we're going to make. Um, there was an interesting challenge. I, I um, uh, somebody said, um, um, yeah, this is a, this is perhaps an interesting um, interesting thing to talk about. Somebody said, "Oh, you know, how come there are not we we had certain certain uh, sort of innovators marked out on this on this history of systematic data? How come there aren't more women on this timeline?" And you know, my so I I sort of took that as a challenge to um, uh, to kind of um, um, uh, figure out, you know, what was missing there. And um, the, um, uh, I think, um, uh, and it was, um, it was interesting to, uh, to try and, uh, you know, my, my goal was to say, were there pieces of history that were missing that shouldn't have been missing, not pieces of history that had to be made up, but pieces of mis history that were missing perhaps not for very good reasons, as in for, for whatever, whatever process of, um, uh, of, uh, of the flow of history, uh, some contribution made by some, some woman wasn't, wasn't recognized in its time for some, for some reason because that woman wasn't a member of some society or this, that, or the other. Um, uh, and, and it sort of should have been. And when we look back on the history, we can see it was important. And, and it was interesting because I did find a number of examples. I'll mention um, uh, two that um, immediately come to mind, um, although I'm not sure I'm going to be able to give all the details. Uh, one was a person called Maria Kunitz, and this was from the 1600s, I think. Um, and she was a person who was involved in the systematization of astronomy and um, in making astronomical tables and so on. and um, a, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give this history very well, um, but uh, that was that was a um, uh, let's see, and I think was connected to um, uh, maybe uh, well, it's a person called Reggio Montanus, who was the person who was the person who sort of systematized trigonometry and then was responsible for a bunch of tables that predated people like Kepler. Uh, Maria Kunitz was in the middle of that whole thing, and I'm I'm trying to remember exactly what the uh, what the what the uh, what the um, uh, what the details of that were, and I, I don't remember offhand. I'll mention one other example: a uh, person in much more recent times named Karen Spark Jones, who was a person in Cambridge, England, um, and who was really a, a key person in the development of text retrieval and what became search engines, and um, uh, in inventing sort of the idea of doing sort of computation with text. And, and that had been an idea that hadn't really, uh, yes, there were, um, uh, there was sort of the, the, some people knew about, you know, storing text in computers. There'd been some thoughts about, about things like language translation in the early sixties and so on. But from what I can tell, Karen Spark Jones was sort of a key person in, in making text retrieval a, um, uh, um, a, a kind of a, a scientific area, um, and uh, I'm not sure if she invented um, 
uh, TFIDF. Um, I think perhaps she did. Term frequency inverse document frequency, which is a standard method for figuring out kind of what's worth indexing in a document that you have. What's a significant word in a document that you have and so on. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, that was a, that was a person who um, uh, who'll be on the next edition of our of our timeline of systematic data. And um, I, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, you know, I, I don't think this is. It's a. I think what what happens there is that this is a field. You know, the science of text retrieval just was a funny kind of field, and. It's sort of a little bit in library science, is it computer science, but it wasn't really computer science. It was a little bit more like library science, but it wasn't really library science. It's a, it's a great sort of innovative field area, but it isn't, a, um, uh, but it isn't something where um, the, uh, the, that has sort of been in the mainstream of, oh yes, it's famous because it was this step in the development of field X, which we all know about. Now, of course, that particular field has become very important, but even now, I'm not sure what you would call it. You know, what is the development of the mechanics of a search engine? It's not really computer science. It's a lot of stuff about details of language and documents and what exists on the web and things like this. It's again, it's a, it's a funny area. And I think that's some, uh, that, that's kind of a, a, a reason why that was not as visible in history as it might've been. But um, uh, that was just one of the things that um, uh, comes to mind in terms of things that um, uh, I was curious about with, with that timeline. And actually, I think there were another one or two examples, but it was some um, uh, uh, interesting, interesting process of, of trying to figure out um, when there is sort of um, history that got forgotten. I mean, another big one, not, um, uh, you know, there, there are places where there's a piece of history that really was quite important but it somehow got, it never, it never engaged with some area that was a big enough brand in a sense that it got recognized that, oh, that's an important piece of history. I mean, another one that I studied a bunch towards the end of last year was Combinators, invented in 1920 by this chap, Moses Schoenfinkel, um, which have been sort of footnotes to history, but they've actually been footnotes on top of which a lot of history has been built, but they haven't really been as much recognized as a significant moment in the history of thinking about computation as I think they probably should have been. And of course, it's always very difficult with these pieces of history because there's kind of what you know now and what people knew then, and there's how do you interpret what people knew then in terms of what you know now? And some of these things, it's like, well, now, of course, we understand all about universal computation. And so we can see that so-and-so was really talking about universal computation. But what they actually said was something completely incomprehensible. And, you know, it, it and, and I don't, and the question is, what did it take for one to really say, yes, they formed the thought that that particular, of that particular thing versus just they were flailing around and they happened to mention these words that sound a bit like these words that we have today. Um, and I know even in some of the things I've done in my own in my own life, you know, there are things where I I, I know I didn't really have the idea um, at, at, at some time in the past. I got the idea later. Given that idea later, I could project back and say, well, I was flailing around more or less in the right pond, but I didn't actually get to um, the um, 
uh, the, the, you know, I didn't really engage. I didn't wrap my arms around the, the idea and I was still just flailing around. And it took, it took another decade or two or more um, to get to that real idea. And I think one sees that to some extent in, in history. And sometimes, sometimes people write about things in a very clear way. Sometimes it's very muddy. You know, I've been, uh, been quite curious about Leibniz and, and what did he figure out and what did he really know? And I think I more or less have that nailed down as far as computation is concerned. But like I was just working on why does the universe exist? And Leibniz worked on that as well. And, um, you know, nailing down what did he really know? And could one take, could one interpret something he said in terms of something we now can understand much more concretely in terms of a bunch of elaborate mathematics and science that's been developed since? Can we sort of back project and say, well, he almost had it. Well, he had the main idea, hard to do in many cases. And um, so, you know, that, that's often a challenge in sort of understanding what some historical precursor looked like, but sometimes it's, it's really clear. And, um, uh, and, and that's, um, uh, and sometimes it, it's clear, but unknown. Sometimes it's clear, but, but, and the most common reason I think is because things lie between, between different fields. And it's just like, nobody wrote a history of X. You know, they've written a history of chemistry, but they haven't written a history of this thing that's somehow between, you know, chemistry and archaeology or something. All right. Well, I think we should wrap up there. I have to go back to my day job here. And um, we're just working on the, the latest version of uh, Wolfram Language and releasing that, which hopefully will happen soon. And uh, my day job right now is... Uh, writing about what's new in that in that version, which is always quite fun. Um, so I think uh, we should wrap up here for now. Thanks for joining us and um, uh, hope to see you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.